Brother Mo, what episode are we on? Episode 19? I believe so, coming up to that 20. Yes. And, and we have a very fascinating guest today, uh, one of the most visible people on my LinkedIn feed. I think every morning when I wake up, I open up my LinkedIn, I see Alex's post. But without further ado, Alex, please tell us, who are you? Uh, I'm Alex. I'm a dad. I'm a VC. I'm chief of staff of a company called Redbrain. I started and exited a company called The Bakery. Uh, I've got ADHD. I, uh, what else do I do? I've got a couple of kids. Uh, I'm endlessly curious. I think in the old days I'd have been like a flaneur or just some kind of person wandering the streets, just observing things. Uh, but yeah, I guess uh, I've done a bunch of things with my life. I used to uh, work at MC Sarchi Ad Agency, like looking after big brands accounts. I looked after the, the, the central strategy unit, they called it. I acquired a company. I've been a VC investing in about 30 companies. Um, so yeah, I've sort of kept busy with a bunch of different things. Awesome. Mo, it's your question next. <laughs> well, I think this is a very nice philosophical question, but it's actually very operational as well. So Alex, what's your purpose? I mean, you know, it's not just making money in VC deals. It sounds like it's a bit broader than that. Very good question. It's, um, so I spent a lot of time working this out. I drew pictures. I spent time with lots of people. I got into things like, like all sorts of little things to try and work out. I think the key thing is that, you know, I, I drew my picture. Um, which is essentially me lifting people up elevators, whether it's my startups, whether it's my wife, whether it's my sons, whether it's the people I work with, we're all lifting people up. And I've, I've since kind of amending that to go, well, what's at the core of that? And I think the thing that fascinates me is the gap between who people are and who they can be. So in the tech world, people say that, you know, software changes the world, you know, software is eating the world and it's software that really changes the world. I, I think that, humans can do way more than they think and i think that it's infinite humans capacities to improve and do things so you know your your insight there is you know what's the thing that ties it all together it's it's fundamentally that um you know i've done i've coached some vcs i've obviously helped startups i'm now doing a role where you know my ultimate goal is to get a big slush fund where basically i can just go and find, uh, you know, that, that classic thing of the 7 billion people in the world. Not everyone has access to opportunity. And I think I'll have some role to play on that, whether it's psychology, whether it's media, whether it's investing in their companies. I've got a plan for where that's all going to end up. Sounds fantastic. So um, in your various projects and posts and so on, you talk a bit about mischief makers and that you're always looking for mischief makers. Mm. Please tell us a little bit more about like, how did you become uh, an investor and a VC and, and mischief maker yourself? And what, what does mischief maker actually mean in, 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 your, in your kind of world, in your view? Well, 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 for me, one of the things I'm really interested in is, you know, we live in a highly specialized society. So, you know, the way schools set up, you know, the way the industrial world set up, high specialization and actually you know the core thing that I really care about is the generalists some of them might be polymaths but they they tend to be curious people about the world they actually tend to be quite lost 
um, because they're good at a number of things and they tend to have short attention spans. Uh, we did this mad thing called Linky Brains. We, we, we found there was an army of these. Some of them were really neurodiverse, neuroatypical, whatever you label them. Really interesting people who have this broad range of interests. And a lot of them didn't really seem to take the world too seriously. And so I guess to maybe conflate a couple of things, I'm really, really interested in the people who see the world through different eyes. You know, they've had something in their background where, you know, they might have been an immigrant or they've turned out an observer and they just don't, they just don't see the world and they haven't been brainwashed and manipulated like most people have. And they, cause they tend to be curious and they tend to ask questions. And I tend to just like people who take uh, just an, a fun view of the world. If you go to Silicon Valley, you know, if you're not talking about the latest app or the latest tech startup, like you're not in the conversation, but the conversation's fucking dull. You sit at dinner around with all these VCs and these founders. It's like tech, 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 tech. It's like there's more to life than that. And so I like the people who question, who have that kind of attitude, Sometimes it's people who've had experiences with death, either come to terms with it or seen it, so they live life with like a game. I really like it when people, what, one of my things in life is to go, what's the game you're playing, whether you know, it's investment, what's the VC, what's the rules of VC that you have to break down and work out? If you're selling a company, what are the rules, what are the buyers looking for? Then like, I really like it when people treat life as a game and also work out life as a series of games where you work out the rules and then work out if you play them or you break them. I just think, I don't know, it's just how my brain works. I don't know if it's a sign of uh, intelligence or mischief or misspent youth, but it just strikes me as a sensible way to look at the world. Makes sense. So I, I like what you said, Alex, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of people basically like either you're talking about the latest app or you don't exist, which is kind of a shame because you're missing out on life, right? So if we just talk about the systematic aspects, I mean, for me, I love the idea of being a generalist and like having different views from different fields on a particular topic because it means you can come up with so different approach. So the question I wanted to ask you is, what are some like common, commonly accepted kind of societal approaches, like things that are actually anti-patterns, which are kind of holding us back collectively? And, you know, how have you overcome them or what have, the, what have been the, some of the best ways that you've seen them overcome? Uh, I think if I understand the question right, well, let me let me try and answer it and you tell me if I've, I, I've sort of answered it correctly. I mean, what, what's really struck me and I still struggle to, to work out is uh, people generally just don't like change and they don't like to be feel threatened from their worldview. And, and the thing that I struggle with the most is dogma. And we live in a world where dogma and ideology and groupthink is just becoming harder and harder and harder to overcome so you know generally you know you've seen on the linkedin thing like how do i cope with people with dogma with societies that don't want to change i i guess i take a playful approach to it. i ask lots of questions i try to find out what people want in the world like if i've got general approach in life i generally I'm, I ask lots of questions. I try to listen. I understand what they want in the world. I try to understand what their desires are, what motivates them. And I try and fit into that rather than introduce my own dogma in the world. Like I, I, I try, like and you see it on social, like I say that I have very little ideology. Of course, we've all got points of view and lenses and things. Of course, we've all got cognitive biases. 
but I basically do my very best if I can not to be too tied to anything. So if there's one truth about the world, it's en entropy. It's it's just constant change, constant flux. And I almost think I've I've got theories on how to run businesses without you know I think we fix our idea on things too quickly rather than just accepting the world's changed and being really adapted to it. Um, so you know, and I guess if there's a if there's a philosophy that I vaguely go that really fits me. It's, it's something like Taoism, which is just very, it's like water, you flow with the environment and react to thing it does rather than fixing on a point and, and, and being too rigid and dogmatic on it. Awesome. And so when, when you're going through this process, both in your thinking as well as in approaching businesses that you might be looking to invest into or somehow work with, we're, we're on the innovation bit, uh, which is how do you look at innovation and what are the kind of core innovative little si signals or even symbols that you're looking for that, that kind of tell you that, that the, the project or a company that you're looking at or even the, the founder is, is really innovative in a, in a true sense, in a way that's worth investing into as opposed to it just kind of seems like a new thing but really when you sort of scratch the surface it's it's kind of the same <laughs> so, so i think that you probably have to just take two lenses on it the first is the game of vc so one of the things you have to play in vc is the common knowledge game will there be somebody up the chain who will invest in that thing and so knowing the games of vc you have to know that it's a fucking big market number one or could potentially be um and frankly is you know some form of uh, hot area like you just have to know you have to think will that be something that is investable to this audience you just have to work that out um, and then I think the second thing and, and really all you've got at seed stage which is where I invest is it's really a question on the found and again the thing that I really look for is I really like the founders that think from first principles and see the world through different eyes who have really, really questioned the world. And it's almost like when you ask them questions, they give you that look, which is why haven't you thought about this, you know, because they've like literally gone through and really, really thought, thought through things. So you're really looking for those thoughtful founders. Um, but, but so much goes into it, right? Um, if I have, if I've got a bias, I really love properly mission driven founders because I missionaries, not mercenaries is a phrase I use. Um, because you want the people who are going to be there when it's really hard. You want the cockroaches. You don't want the consultants who come in fly by night when the sector you know, doesn't have the money in it. They, they give us where. And I also really like people who, you know, I talk about cult leaders. Why do I talk about cult leaders? Because at the start of any investment, what I'm really saying is you need to be able to bring people on the journey with you. You have nothing. So what do you have to do? You have to sell to an investor. So an investor has to buy you. You have to sell to customers, customers have to buy it, and you have to sell to recruits. People have to come for no cash, maybe a bit of options and equity to come to work for you. So I'm really looking for those magnet people who can attract those people to it. And frankly, the idea is important within the market, but you know, <laughs> one thing you learn at seed stage is that can change and change and change and change. Like the product and the market is very, very fluid. It, rare, it rarely stroke, never is the thing you think about. A startup is simply a series of experiments. And the key is to 
uh, get those loops working and to get the learnings from those experiments as fast as possible. And I really like startups who either ship really quickly or they have just, they literally just see it as learning cycle one, learning cycle two, learning cycle three. Because people who think like that will get more learning faster. Yeah, so we find that the, like every day we're, we're somewhat changing our approach, but it's going always in towards the same purpose. And then that's kind of like a wiggly line that can be going also in all sorts of directions, but generally yeah. in that direction of purpose. So yeah. then in terms of products, what kind of products do you look to invest into? Are there per, particular um, uh, verticals or are you looking... At, at that sort of combinatorics of people, approach, thinking, product, vertical, sort of money making sense. You know, what, 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 but specifically in terms of products, what kind of grabs your attention when it comes to products and services? Um, I think it's very clear when you have founding teams that get product because they think in terms of users, they test things very quickly. The thing I'm most impressed by and this is very rare for tech people, it's so rare for tech people, if you've got a tech founder, is the people who run out to a shop, who speak to customers, who phone them up. Like, you would be amazed at the number of products that get built with people who just build what they think the world wants. And I love it, like, um, when, you know, people are up on the phone late at night, and they're literally calling their customers, going, what do you like about that? What do we need to, like, always, always iterating and asking customers. But I also think, Product is one of the hardest things. That thing where you know you need to test and learn, you need to ask customers, but you need to marry it with vision. It's an art. There's a real art to building great products, and there's very few, certainly in the UK and Europe, amazing product practitioners. It's one of the shortages. We 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 don't have great salespeople. I don't necessarily think we don't have a huge pool of tech people. We don't definitely don't have a huge pool of um, product people. It's getting better all the time. It's obviously got a lot better over the last decade, but obviously comparing to somewhere like the States, you just don't have of experience where they've done generation after generation and handed the skills down. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I love those. So to answer your question, I generally love those who are testing more with audience, but there are certain people who just haven't, art they have that mix of vision and testing which i can't put my finger on um and you just tend to see it through the product that they build it's, it's difficult to test for or interview for or to find out without just saying what have you built and if they show you a portfolio of 18 products they've built i'm like okay this is interesting so so talking about selling I, mean, I get what you're saying alex right because it's so tempting and i've said from this in the past to just code something think that features is going to solve it but it's actually about engaging with the real world problem right yeah. so talking about solving real world problems and this question is actually a good opportunity for comment on the wider investment industry what is the importance of revenue in a startup and the answer is pretty evident but i guess this is also an opportunity to just discuss the larger approach to what stage companies get funded how does that look like till when do we defer revenue? Because I think the old model of, I'm gonna raise a bunch of rounds and hope you know somebody is a stupider than the earlier round, doesn't really work that much anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it, it, I think in what, what I would say is that, you know, at seed stage, the revenue, the initial focus shouldn't be revenue. It should be, you know, what, what investors are really looking for is, this is a generalization but a, a product 
which a small group of people absolutely adore. So rather than having a product that you have lots of users for, but they churn a lot, if you have a small cohort who absolutely love it, you're onto something. So typically at seed stage, I would be focusing on that. Now, the issue on revenue, so if you're talking about what revenue would you need, at like things like Series A, there are very, you know, uh, well-trodden metrics anyone can find online, you know, SaaS, SaaS companies, typically million pound ARR um, would be a good, you know, is obviously a sort of start conversation for a Series A, but depending on the sector and you could be in a particularly hot sector, it could be a very sort of tech heavy, could be very patent heavy thing, could be a hot sector. Like mm-hmm. it's too varied a question to like if Andreessen have just done an equivalent deal in the States and the founder has been a second time founder before there's so many variables by which investors will value a company um, that um, it, it doesn't just have to be revenue. Having said that in Europe, we tend to be more, um, more revenue focused um, so it, it, it's it, it's not a question that you can answer in the absolute because um, frankly you know I think another thing just to bear in mind with what investors invest in um, there's a phrase that uh, venture capitalists don't price companies they no they don't value companies they price stories right so what does that mean? Obviously, at the early stage, you can't really value a company. They don't have profits and free cash flow to do discounted um, uh, valuation, uh, discounted free cash flow models on to get you know valuations. Uh, but if you can tell a story, if you can, let's just take what Uber said. Uber said they weren't just a taxi company; they were reinventing cities by becoming a logistics company. I.e., we're in a much bigger market than you think. You can get people, then you can believe that you can disrupt something. If you can sell, you can get money in evaluation. So it's there, there are, I guess what I'm saying is anyone can look online and find out what VCs look for at certain stages, blah, blah, blah. But the rules are always broken for a bunch of reasons. But the thing that doesn't change, you have to be a fucking great, compelling founder who can tell a story. I think that's like table stakes. So when it comes to growth, then I've seen and worked with so many startups that have grown in terms of hiring more people and then hired more people and kind of built more product, built more service, kind of, you know, just that the expenditure goes up and up as there is more people, more product, more technology inside. Like, how do you look at growth? What's, what's a sort of healthy growth trajectory for for let's say a startup in in your kind of like perfect template of some sort yeah so really what you want is you want seven percent weekly growth 30 percent month on month ideally um you uh you've just hit on one of my bugbears though which is people hiring really quickly so if you ask a vc what we should do they're going to go spend money grow right and so often companies are building teams and uh, spending money, maybe on Google Ads or Facebook ads, before they've quite worked out what they're doing. And the reason is, you know, the VC model goes grow as fast as you can, get as big as you can. And, and I, I just have a strong belief that actually companies should stay leaner for longer and really, really try. I, I always say to startups, 
keep as much of your equity as possible in the early days because it's going to be the most expensive time that you give away your well the most expensive times when you give it to a founder and then when you take your seed round and i've seen so many companies who they handicap themselves from the start because they've given away all this equity right at the start and you can't give it back and i guess how i think about it is you're losing optionality because if you get to your series a and you as a founder are down to 30 percent 40 percent like you're struggling you're struggling to raise around you have to recapitalize your cap table yeah, no. like, mm-hmm. and so it's just I, I i always try to educate founders i think everyone just thinks vc is only path only path only path must raise bigger round possible and every found most founders i speak to who've been on fundraising rounds say one of their biggest regrets is giving away too much equity too early before they knew what they were doing and that's the thing they wouldn't do again so, Alex, you've just raised a very important question here. Uh, and I actually love your <laughs> opinion as a VC, right? Because I have a few of my friends working in the financial world who highly disagree. So, um, my company, for example, Anya, right? We're taking this approach. We want to be profitable day one. Uh, we don't actually want to take seed funding. So, we want to bootstrap all the way till Series A. And so, the approach I'm taking day one, even though I built the platform, you know, Jason has obviously been very helpful as well, is like basically to give very high amount of equity to people that will be joining me, right? And I'll probably have like 55% left by the time I've distributed it to the team. One non-negotiable thing that I will have when I raise Series A is major voting rights for my shares so that we can run an enlightened dictatorship and people could contradict me. And it's not about voting, it's just about having a company. So I just want you to tell me completely honestly, and this is also useful for other founders, let's say you're running a profitable company, you're nearing Series A, I know you're more on seed, how many, potential deals am i killing how many people how many how many investment opportunities am i losing if i hypothetically have one million ARR and i say accept 21 voting rights or to keep your money uh most of the audience probably like there's a yeah but i think the important point is that you you need to know what you want so what most founders don't do is they don't work out what they want and what life they want to live like i play games with founders i'm like well how much money is enough you know, and they often end up going, well, if I had a million, uh, you know, and then I could live with that, would be great. And I'm like, well, why are you taking venture capital? And, mm. you know, that's not the only metric. Obviously, everyone's going to change the world and, they yeah, need to yeah. it and it's entrepreneurship's a bug and blah, blah, blah. But people don't think about the, the, the people just assume the only way is to grow as fast as possible, right? And it, it absolutely, and all I say is, it's a great model for certain people with a serpent temperament who fucking want to go it and go all it fine. Yeah. But there's a cohort of people who just do it because everyone else does it, who don't start by working out what they want. And it sounds like what you've done is you've worked out what you want. And yeah. if you have to exclude a universe of investors to have the control, to have the rights, to have it working and have the people around you you want, you've got so be it. And that is yeah. a life decision. And I applaud you for making a decision that is based on the life that you want to lead. So many people are living somebody else's life where somebody mm-hmm. else is basically, whether, whether you think it or not, when you take investment, you, you've lost control, right? Well, yeah. Like, like, yeah. like whatever the doctor say, you suddenly have, if you take a lot of equity at the start, you, you know, it's hard to get off that train for a bunch of reasons. Oh yeah, I agree. You, if you've like, lost control at seed stage before you're profitable, you lost control of your destiny. Clearly, I agree with you. Yeah, and 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 it's not it's not say don't take investment. You might put like it's part of it's getting the right. What you've got to do is you've got to align your desires with the investors' desires. And if yeah. you're 
BC. It's a very clear game. We talked about games at the start. Hmm. The GPs, the, the investors, their job is to give a suitcase of money three times the size back to their limited partners within a 10 year time frame. Okay. I've done a blog. I've done a blog. If you have a look at just type in medium, things are like medium, type in medium for the 99%, not the 1% or something like that. And basically okay. it breaks down the economics of BC that says how it works is you have to keep going on this growth rate. Um, and therefore uh, every single company needs to at least 10 X Okay, the initial valuation mm-hmm. and needs, and it depends on the size of the fund, but basically you end up going, I now understand why everyone talks about unicorns and why unicorns are so important. So if you have a big fund, you need yeah. two or three companies to smash it and get really big for it to work. And honestly, yeah, yeah. everyone else doesn't matter. So, so paying VC, one of the things to know is that they have a portfolio of say 25 companies, two yeah, or most, three most end up not mattering. And again, for some people, fine that's the game they want to play some people won't want to play that i'm like either thing's cool cool so so what you're saying is if you don't take too much funding and i'm using this as a learning opportunity because i have a very different approach right this is a good opportunity to, to consult your contrarian mind and also to prove a point to an investment banker friend um, so what you're saying is if i'm if we're growing we're highly profitable very lean we've built all of that from the ground up right when we in arr we're doing five million at a 25 pre as long as we're delivering 250 million without further funding, then we've done the job for the LPs and the GPs, right? Yeah. That's the total valuation. Yeah. Okay. That's thank you. Yeah. So if you go in going, I see no reason why this investment won't 10 X. I think that, you know, 250 million is my absolute baseline case. Otherwise I've failed, but I see no reason this can't be a 2 billion business. And this is how it would look at 2 billion. Okay. That's a good start to a presentation. And this is, what, what no one does at the start of a presentation is go, this is what the world looks like when it's done. Everyone iterates from where they are. What yeah. Everyone should do that first slide should go, this is the world and this is my product's place in that world. So you're mm. already, you're framing, you're framing what the, you're framing their response from there. So they're no longer looking at it as a product from here. They're going, wow, wouldn't that be great? I can see how that could work. Yeah, this is another example of scaling down as opposed to yeah. scaling up, uh, which we kind of recently kind of flipped around. So how we scale this down from a sort of like a global idea, right? And make it relevant to pockets of the world around the, the world. So like, what, what is Alex? Yeah, we're now in, we've covered all the seven areas of design company model here. So we're in a little bit of like free form conversation. What share with us some kind of core things that we need to know now that we're in this 2020, you know, I think lots of people had a plan and they got punched in the face at the beginning of the year. Like what now, what, what should we as let's say founders of companies, people looking to build fortunes as well as prosperity for not just us, but like everyone else that's working with us, what should we be really focusing on? Laughter and love and smiling and joy <laughs> and treating life. Smell as a the game flowers. <laughs> treating life as a game to play because, like, it is hard and you can, you know, uh, this framing your brain thing, right? If you can frame your brain to go, you know, there's certain people, and again, I talked a little bit that they've either had near death experience or whatever, but there is a there is a playful joy to how they treat life. Like there, there's not that weight and that heavy burden and you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but if you can find ways to frame, I used to work with a co-founder who 
he was like unbelievable. He could like brainwash his own brain to everything was positive. Like he didn't have a bad day <laughs> because his brain just went, everything's an opportunity and everything's positive. And he's Toxic just, positivity. Uh, and so, you know, and, and it's not, it's not a hippy trippy, crappy, trappy thing. It's just, it's just a, you know, life is short. If you can treat it as a game and, and, all the levels and obstacles through it to, you know, we're all on hero's journey, right? Everyone's life gets shit at times. We all go into the belly of the whale. And the reason we all love Star Wars and Harry Potter and all those films, whether it's Pinocchio, is everyone, you know, hero's journey, you get the call to arms, go to the belly where it's really shit and you come out the other side. And for most things, not obviously for all things, most people always come out the other side. And, you know, being a founder obviously is like eating glass and jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. Which <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you can just try and enjoy the glass as you eat it, if I'm like murdering analogies, then um, life becomes so much better. I, I like I like that philosophy, right? Because I think especially in the tech world, it's so easy for people to be like, oh, the next five, 10 years are horrible, but life will be so much better when I finally exit and make a billion dollars. Um, and I think what you're saying as well is, you know, just learn to enjoy the journey. And I think yeah. the key it's thing there that earnest. I picked the up. was too earnest. It's too serious. It's too labor yeah, yeah. It's too boring. And actually, it's too self-important. But actually, in that respect, that's actually one thing I have learned. You know, I used to be like, oh, man, I can't wait to be rich one day. And then actually I discovered what the real wealth was. I mean, it's kind of like, as you said, kind of the old school hippie thing. It's not the treasure that you found at the end. It's the friends that you made along the way, right? Okay. There you and go. so, I mean, for me, that's how I define really wealth, which I consider I've already achieved. It's selecting who I'm working with and enjoying my life with, getting to work with smart, interesting people, and then also just spending my time how I wish. Like the other day, I was in south of France, in the pool, like talking on Slack, sorting some things out. That's the life, basically. You win. You win. It's um, the very fact that you've questioned that puts you in a minority of people. I don't think most people question that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I frame it as what, you know, what's my next phase meaningful work with people I love. I have an, I wrote a post on this. I, I think I, I basically spent a lot of my thirties just naturally networking because it's just something I did. I didn't really think it was networking, but I guess that's what it sort of was. And really what I learned through that is every, all the types of people that I want to shed in my life. So one of my metrics is meaningful work with people I love. Can I spend every second of every day only with people I want to work with and none of the people I don't? And so far, it works out pretty well. But only because I've, I guess, kissed a lot of frogs, spent a lot of time with lots of people and gradually you shared and create a bunch of people around you with good energy. So I have a question around, it's related to what you're just saying in terms of enjoying life and actually enjoying the hero's journey and even being in the belly of the whale and all that stuff. So there seems to have been, even in 2019, uh, you know, for me, I'm coaching people through Fresh Mind program and it, it, it sounds a bit like wishy-washy, changing your mind, dropping all the outdated programming that maybe worked you know for a majority of of last decade but it's kind of radically now stopping to work um and now that fresh mind program is like making more and more sense and it's in the wellness sort of mental space kind of health mental health kind of space tell me a little bit about what you see in in that space do you see that space kind of 
uh, expanding more? Is that a viable industry and area? You know, is that the kind of next big thing, perhaps even? Well, I can just give a hope on that. I just hope that we get, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're nations addicted to pills and labeling things. And, you know, one of the interesting things was how f- so many people didn't bother going to the doctors during COVID because they just didn't panic every time they had like a sniffle or something like our bodies are pretty good at solving stuff. So I just think we've become a sleepwalking nation. We, we sedate ourselves with alcohol and prescription drugs that are pushed on us. And, you know, sleeping well, eating well, exercising every day is uh, a pretty good, if everyone in the world did that, would live in such a better world. Um, we've obviously got an epidemic of mental non-health um, of people who are nutritionally unhealthy. And like, what, like if you could just wave a magic wand and just get people to educate themselves and to um, just lead better, fitter, healthier lives, then um, we'd have a healthier, happier society for sure. I just think that we've grown up with lots and lots of bad habits that have been fostered on us by pharmaceutical companies, mild industry advertising, getting you to desire drink and cigarettes and all that, 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 that stuff. So hopefully there's a bit of an awakening on all that. And, and do you see that like actually then percolating and trickling through into the rest of economic and investment circles where no. it's actually investing into well-being of a company as a more holistic kind of approach as opposed to those kind of even what you mentioned of 7% uh, growth in terms of money? Uh, you know, and it's like that's that perhaps becomes a non-negotiable, even though everyone else is just like a, on a complete burnout internally. Yeah, the, I, I just see the world in cycles like, you you know, you don't have to chat to people for long to go how meaningless then how rubbish they think work is and how, you know, and, and even if you look in the last 10 years, you can see how much well-being of employees has gone up the agenda. Um, and uh, so yeah i can definitely see the next decade being even more focused on that um i i never know how it'll exactly play out um i'm pretty good at identifying like long-term trends but as per the products that will win within that i i always assume i don't know i i uh, i i always try and be the dumbest person in the room um i think that people who have certainty and lots of conviction around investments i think mostly are fundamentally fooling themselves because the stats on VC just show you that most things fail, that all the big funds get most wrong. And it's actually just a numbers game. If you look at the maths of it, you get the best deal flow, you invest in a number of companies, some will work. And I just think we have the, the confirmation bias on our own abilities to predict that, um, that uh, certainly most VCs overstate their ability. Uh, when really you have a lot of money and you have a lot of bets and frankly, some come off and the more bets you make, the more likely more are to come off. Um, and, and so that's that. So um, in terms of uh, just one final question from me then, sure. when, when we think about someone like Elon Musk and you mentioned first principles thinking, um, I, one of the things I've really, really deeply contemplated on is that if we do approach every 
problem or a solution from the first principles. What ends up being the case is that there is one optimal solution that's built from true first principles. And that is the company that's ultimately going to win in that, in that sector if, if first principles work truly to the first principles <laughs> thinking. And it seems to be the case that Elon Musk is increasingly winning more and more because he's really the, really the only founder in the true sense that's kind of really approaching it from first principles in terms of building companies. And even he's not kind of the purest first principle you know, thinker. So eventually we'll, we might end up in a situation where there's actually only one company that was built from the first principles in any given industry that really is the most optimal and there is no better way to do it. What's your um, thought on this? I, I mean, I'd have to think about that. I, I'm not sure it, it follows that, you know, because you can build, you can work out, I think first principles helps you understand the highest level of what the problem is to solve. I still think that there are a number of ways to solve things with human creativity and ingenuity that I, I'm not sure that it, it follows that there's only one pure um, expression of that. Um, but I don't know, I'd have to think about that some more. Um, what I do know is that Elon's a total alien uh, and he's insane and is just from another dimension. Uh, and not many people can do what he does. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, it would be great if more founders, you know, it goes back to the point about measure twice, cut once, the more founders actually think about what they're doing. I'd much prefer founders to be thinking more and doing less. So obviously, you know, the founders tend to be, um, natural just doers. Um, and actually, the, the, the more I've been in this game, the more I appreciate the people who can really think. Okay, okay. And so where, what kind of company, just as a final question, what kind of company are you looking for right now? Like, what would be your like, perfect investment? Maybe uh, my, do you have something specific in mind? Mine is founders. I start with founders. I, I, I don't go sector specific. I always go, the, the key thing at the early stage is always going to be, the founders and I look for cult leaders, the missionaries who uh, can understand product and who I, I really like it when the business is an extension of them. They, you literally couldn't imagine them doing another business because they just bleed it, um, which tends to actually be some older founders, like the 20 year olds tend to know themselves less well, you know, less self-awareness. Yep. Um, but that, that tends to be my, my, my real, I guess, cut that I look for. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate both Mo and I have been really excited about speaking to you. Um, and, you know, I think this was like a quality conversation. We hit on all the seven areas and then had a bit of freeform chat. Where can people find you? What's the best sort of destination for, for perhaps founders to, to reach out to you? Uh, LinkedIn, Alex Dunstan and Twitter, Alex Dunstan, although I'm considering burning Twitter. Um, mm, me too. Yeah, it's, it's so toxic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Alex, and really appreciate it. All Thanks, the best. Guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers. Bye-bye.